0: Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Good to see you this morning. Y'all doing okay? Y'all doing okay? Pat, you doing okay? Way to go, Pat. Okay. Well, because of that warm welcome, take out a sheet of paper and something to write with. We're having a quiz. Oh, I'm serious. Right now we're having a quiz. Okay, we'll do it orally. Don't take anything out. We'll do it orally. Okay? Well, I'm going to out you right now. Welcome me like that, will you? Here's the quiz, and I'm going to give you a hint. It will uh, we'll narrow it down to just the Old Testament. Make it easier on you, okay? So you don't have to think about both testaments, just the Old Testament. These answers only come from the Old Testament. And if you know them, speak them out loud, Okay? Okay, here's question number one. Question number one is this. Who was the greatest comedian in the Bible? Who? It was the only guy we know of who actually brought down the house. It was Samson. Come on, people. Wake up. Wow. Okay, here's another one. Who was the greatest male financier in the Bible? Greatest male financier. Oh, it was Noah, because Noah floated his stocks while everybody else was in liquidation. Some of you'll get that later. Who was the greatest female financier in the Bible? greatest female financier close but no star for you it was pharaoh's daughter actually remember she went down to the bank of the nile and she withdrew some a profit (laughs) yep 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 i've got several more but i'll just go with this last one who was the shortest man in the bible old testament now sorry just old testament knee Maya. <laughs> you can boo at that one. Boo. So much for audience participation. Oh, goodness. Well, I hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, the reason I wanted to end with Nehemiah is because um, though I had a little, you know, fun with his name there, uh, I actually have a great deal of respect for, for Nehemiah. And he was a man used by God in many, many ways. And he's a man whose life and leadership uh, we're going to study. We're going to actually take the next, uh, I don't know how long. So I've, I started to say weeks or months. I don't know. We're, we're just going to go through the book of Nehemiah verse by verse. Now, today we're going to do the first four verses. I promise that we'll do them in bigger chunks normally. But today, I love these beautiful teenage faces down here. I, I, feel, I, feel, I feel good. I feel old, but I feel good. The, um, the, uh, but what was I saying about Nehemiah? Yeah, we're going to do this Nehemiah thing. Um, and the, the book of Nehemiah is just this incredible work, and we're kicking off uh, a teaching series that we're calling Rebuild uh, out of the life and the, 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 the teaching, if you would, the way he lived and led uh, of, of Nehemiah. Um, he's a great Old Testament character, though probably not as well known as many others. And we are going to do this kind of verse by verse. You, hopefully you'll get to know Nehemiah. So I want us to begin by just reading those first four verses this morning. Um, if you would, if you've got your Bibles, open them or turn them on or s- flip them over to Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. That's where it says this. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So these were some who had uh, survived the Babylonian exile, where they took People captive back to Babylon. Some of them had escaped and then went back and stayed and lived in Jerusalem. This is the report that they, they gave to Nehemiah. They said this to me. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble. Now that remnant's people. This, the, the remnant, the people there are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is the the word of the Lord. Now, I want to take some moments to give some background to the book of Nehemiah. So th- th- there's going to be a little history today, some context. I think it will serve us well as we study the book. Um, so I want to do that. First thing that I would just share with you as far as information, if you had a Hebrew Bible, just a Hebrew Old Testament Bible, you would notice quickly that Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. It's not, it's not broken out into two books. That's a recent occurrence Um, And the reason for that is it's actually kind of one continuous story. It's all about the kind of the the same time frame. Interestingly, uh, there's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, as we know them as two separate books. There's a third book that really kind of lands in the same time frame, and it's the book of Esther. So Esther actually kind of precedes some of the activity we see um, in Ezra and and then in Nehemiah. But they kind of are... kind of same storyline if you want to think of them that way it helps me to do that and this is all kind of going on in this season after the Babylonian captivity now the prophet Jeremiah had been told by God to tell his people they were going to be in captivity for 70 years and Esther kind of picks up about midways maybe of that that captivity and then Ezra and Nehemiah kind of follow after that but this is about midway through God begins arranging some things to start preparing to send his people back out of captivity to restored worship back in the capital city of Jerusalem. And so that, that kind of began. There are also two other books in the Old Testament that have a lot to do um, with the, the, the book of Nehemiah and, and Ezra. It, it's the, the, the books of the minor prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And so we'll refer back to them some um, as we we take this journey together because God used those prophets um, for a very specific purpose on on that journey. Now, Ezra, Ezra was a priest. He was of that, that, that lineage of, of that priestly line. So he was a priest of the people of God. He had come back to Jerusalem before he preceded Nehemiah. He had brought some people with him. Before he came, there had been another one, a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, who also led some people back to Jerusalem. So there were kind of these three waves of people coming out of captivity, heading back to, to Babylon, and, and Nehemiah would leave, lead kind of that, that last wave. Um, now, the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, God had used them during kind of the preparation of the hearts of his people, both uh, in Babylon in captivity in Jerusalem to prepare them that once they got back to Jerusalem, they would first begin to reestablish worship of Yahweh. They would rebuild the temple, and uh, then they would start rebuilding the city. And that was kind of the, the movement that would take place. Now, so think about Ezra and Nehemiah, all of those folks as, as contemporaries. Now, I told you that Ezra was a, a, a priest. Um, Haggai and Zechariah were prophets. Nehemiah was, Nehemiah was, I started to say he was an average Joe, but there's no such thing as an average Joe, just so you know, okay? No such thing. Um, he was just an average guy, average, average Nehemiah. He was what some might call a, a, a layman. But he had a very interesting job. He was what today we would probably think of, he was kind of like a butler. Uh, he was the cupbearer to the king. Um, in, in Nehemiah 1:1 that we read a moment ago, it tells us there's a specific phrase in, in Nehemiah 1:1. It says, "In the 20th year." Well, that, that's mentioning that's focusing on the 20th year of the reign of a certain king. And if you flip over uh, to Nehemiah chapter two, verse one, that king gets named. Uh, it's not going to come up on the screen. You have to actually look there. You can go look at it later. But uh, trust me that it goes over and it names him. This is going to be King um, Artaxerxes. And so we, 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 we get this name, this title of this king. Now, many, uh, not all, but many historians will tell us that um, the king that is named in the book of, of Esther, that Esther ends up becoming the queen to, is his, his name is King Ahas UArius. OK? Say it with me. Ahas Uarius. You got it? Ahas Urareus. You can forget it now, but I just thought you would have fun saying it. The, but anyway, many historians tell us that these are the same men. It's the same king. And these are just actually kind of different titles, like even in our day, kings of England can have other titles. Well, they, they had other titles. And so we, we could talk about that for a long, long time, but just suffice it to say, in my personal study, I've come to believe this, that the the queen that uh, the, the king that Esther is married to is the same king that Nehemiah is the is the cupbearer to. Now, you remember the story about Esther, right? She was this young Jewish maiden who uh, kind of entered a, a, a got entered into, she didn't enter it, she got entered into kind of a beauty contest. And she was chosen by the king to, to be his, his next wife, the, the king of, uh, of, of Persia. And the Bible tells us that she kind of won, won his heart. Now, God could have used any method that he chose to change, the, turn the king's heart uh, to send Nehemiah back to Jerusalem. He could have used any method. I just believe he chose to use the heart of his queen. And so it's interesting, if you if you go further into Nehemiah, into Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 6, you'll read this. And this is going to come up on the screen. And, and this is Nehemiah. He said, And the king said to me, and it's interesting that this is put in God's word parenthetically, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And, and when will you return? This was Nehemiah saying to the king I need to go to Jerusalem and he says how long would it take you to go it's just interesting to me that that passage of scripture sticks in there and the queen was sitting by him well I believe it's because personally believe that's because it was it was Queen Esther that we have a, a whole book about her life story and the way that God used her now the book of Nehemiah is takes place, the events of that book take place in the 5th century. So this is five 600 years before the, the birth of our Lord Jesus. And it's this story of, of rebuilding. First, there's going to be a clear story of rebuilding the walls of the city. But it's also a rebuilding of the people of God. A restoring people who are living in brokenness to a new walk with God. It's also the journey of an imperfect man. Um, though he was a, a, a good leader, a great leader, um, Nehemiah was not a perfect leader. He, he, he wasn't a perfect leader. He made some mistakes on the way. At one point, he kind of comes against God's big, beautiful vision of all peoples, worshiping him. He kind of says, no, I'm not going to let you guys participate, um, other nationalities. And uh, he kind of stands against God's vision for that. Um, by the time we get to the end of the book, we'll see along this journey, uh, so I'll just say it this way, when we get to the end of the book, it doesn't end with a hap- happily ever after story, okay? That's not the way the book of Nehemiah ends. It's not a happily, happily ever after story. In fact, by the time we get to the book, Nehemiah is kind of, he's very emotionally charged, you'll, you'll see. Um, will see. He, in some ways, is very self-focused, and he looks like he's struggling with significant anxiety. That's kind of the way we see the closeout of Nehemiah's life. He's struggling with that. But that's hopeful to somebody like me. It it gives me comfort. It gives me hope to know that God could use somebody like that. God could use uh, somebody who's mixed up and messed up uh, for his good pleasure. And we will see that in, in the book of, uh, of Nehemiah. In fact, one of the things that I love about this book is that it never, ever, never hides the truth about its heroes. That's one of the principles we've, we'll learn in Nehemiah, I think, but it's one of the, the principles and truths of this book. It always just points out human flaw, human failure, human tragedy, and how God's grace is sufficient for all human brokenness we'll see that lived out in in the book of nehemiah so that's that's kind of the context and content that i want us to think about for a minute uh, we'll come back to some of that on the journey uh, but to, i also want us to kind of think of going into this this journey of what is the big idea just kind of the big idea uh, of the book of nehemiah and i want you to to we, we could read verses one through three again um, if you would just bring that th- those verses up who's back there megan is that you It is Megan. Thank you, Megan. Bring those verses up and go ahead and jump us down to verse 3 again. Nehemiah heard this again. This was the news he got. That there was this remnant, these people there in the province who had survived the exile. And that remnant is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. There's kind of the message of what Nehemiah is going to be facing. And so I want you to be captured by what the big idea of the book is, I think. The big, big idea of the book of Nehemiah is simply this. To rebuild by restoring from ruin a city's walls and a nation's people. By, by rebuilding, restoring from ruin a city's walls and a nation's people. That's kind of the, the big overarching themes, if you would, of, uh, of this book. Now, in, in verse 3, we read a couple of things. We, we, we read, first of all, that there's this remnant there in the province who had survived the exile. And it says they're in great trouble and shame. New Century Version uh, translates it this way. Those who are left from the captivity are back in Judah, but they are in much trouble and full of shame. New Living Translation translates it this way. They are in great trouble and Disgrace. Disgrace. See, the people of God find themselves in great trouble, but they also find themselves in disgrace. And as I have been watching this and studying it and reading it, we see that they've been stuck here in this city for, for 70 years. They've been stuck here in this in the city. Nothing had improved. Their living conditions had not gotten better. In fact, they got worse. And they got worse because they had left God out of their lives. They had walked away from God. They had walked away from his word, from his commands, from his statutes. They had walked away from the grace that God had provided by his presence being among them. And they found themselves in big trouble. And they found themselves cut off, separated from grace. They were in disgrace. And one of the truths that I see here being worked out throughout all of Nehemiah, and again, in fact, throughout the whole of God's word, is is this truth. We stay stuck in our trouble and in our disgrace because we leave God out of the restoration process. We leave God out of the restoration process. One of, I, I think one of the greatest widespread deceptions of our day is, I got this, God. I got this, God. Friends, we don't got squat. Is that grammatically correct? Can, can you say that, any of my English minor, majors out here? That's what God would say back to us. Without him, we don't have anything. You know, we think we function quite adequately without him or with him, without him. And one of the things that is so striking to me is even in our day in the church, Christians, we, we live and function uh, as if we don't really need God. And, and here's, here's another sad thing. As I, as I look deeply into my own life, as I look at my own personal tendencies there are still places and traces in my life where I act like I live out like I don't need God I still do that sometimes they show up in me and God points those out now the book of Nehemiah is is really written in such a way to shout out to us all we need God We've got to have him at the center point of our lives, especially if there is any damage or ruin or destruction from our past. If we want to see true life change, if we want to see true transformation come, God has got to be central to that restorative process. That really is a central theme in the book of Nehemiah. So here's what we find. We find the city of Jerusalem where the walls are torn down and the people are in despair. Now, here's, here's something to remember about the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is not only like the capital city. It's not only like, you know, Columbia, South Carolina for our state. J- Jerusalem is a, an image. It is a, it's a prophetic picture, if you would, for the people of God. And it's a prophetic picture of the place where God dwells. Some of you will remember that when, when God decided that he was going to uh, have this more permanent dwelling place here on earth, he told David, I want you to build me a temple on Mount Zion. I want you to build me a temple in Jerusalem. And so for God's people, when they, when they look at the Jerusalem, they don't just think about, okay, that's where you know the center of commerce, the center of government. Mostly what they thought about was this is where God lives. This is where our God lives resides this is this is where he dwells and for them that made them a special people they saw themselves as being a special people set apart because god chose to live in this city and and dwell among them and we find that in both the old testament and the new testament but the new testament points out the truth about that prophetic picture that it was truly just to be a picture it wasn't god's ultimate plan god's ultimate plan was to indwell you and me that was God's ultimate plan, was for Jesus to come and make it possible, for God not to dwell in any building, but for God to live in us, in, in, in his people. The great apostle Paul points that out so incredibly in Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Paul writes this. He says, in the past, God hid this mystery, but now he has revealed it to his people. And Here's the mystery, which is Christ living in you, Giving you the hope of glory. That Christ in you is the hope of glory. God is dwelling in you if you have trusted in Jesus. Because that's where he is. Christ in you is the hope of glory. That is God's great grace provision. It is God's great heart desire that we would see him and know him that way. And that leads me to another great reason to study another great truth I see in in Nehemiah is this. It's only by God's grace, only by God's grace, that we will ever come and overcome the damage and the ruin that's caused by our past, but that's currently controlling our present. So many people, so many Christ followers even, are living out of pain and sorrow of their past, stuck in the past. And because they've kind of kept God out of the restorative process and are living in disgrace, cut off from God's grace. And we've got to let God be the center of that or our past will control what's happening in our present. Now, as we, we think of this, we, we think of the, this New Testament, the, the, this language that the Old Testament has used to describe these captives, uh, these exiles, these people, uh, the, the, the Jews of this day, some of that is the very same language that the New Testament used about the church, about the people of God, that we are a people that are living currently in exile. If you ever feel like you don't belong in the mess that's going on in this world, if you're in Jesus, it's be- you don't. You are in exile. Your citizenship is not here if you're in Christ, you are actually supposed to be somewhere, where else? And I find myself praying more frequently for that great, glorious day of the return of our Lord than I ever do. I don't tweet a lot, but I tweeted out that this week. I just, I just got so overwhelmed one day this week of, of thinking, Jesus, come, Jesus, come. I'm just ready. Anybody else getting like that? Is you know, maybe it's just an old age thing. I don't know. Um, but I just find myself more and more longing, that's the word I'm looking for, longing for the return of our Lord in, in the days in which we're living. And, you know, it's, that, I think that's part of the longing that the people of God felt here in Nehemiah. They had this longing for restoration to come, for, for God to move. The last half of verse 3 of Jeremiah chapter 1, it says, The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates... Are destroyed by fire. Now, this picture of the holy city of God, the dwelling place of God, being in ruins, points out, I believe, gives us an illustration of human life, of what a human life looks like when it's in ruin, when, it, when its walls are, are destroyed, its, its, its primary defenses are dispro- uh, uh, can't stand against attacks, spiritual attacks, lies. Deceptions from the enemy. And that, that keeps us open to, to hurt, to misery, to, to, to suffering, even, even as God's people. Now, if you're, if, you're, if you're at all acquainted with what's going in the world today, I mean, if you've turned the TV on at all recently, if you've read a news feed, you know, any news service, you'll know that people are experiencing incredible hurt. Now, here's what our tendency is often. Our tendency often is is to see it, maybe read some details, and then try to get away from it, because we just sometimes feel like we're on overload. But God has called his people into the suffering of one another, into the suffering of others, even our enemies. And... Again, if you've turned on the TV or you've looked at any news feed, you you know that people in Haiti are suffering today. Suffering devastation. Deaths, insurmountable numbers of deaths. Families broken. Lives, not only homes in ruin, but lives in ruin. And God has called us to step into their suffering. We have brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now who are cut off from rescue, some trying to get out of the country. American citizens, American allies, but we have brothers and sisters who don't have the capacity to even leave the country. Christians who are poor, too poor for, to afford travel. And they're, they're in a desperate situation. And God's, God's word calls us To see their suffering, to see that destruction and that ruin. And to pray. And to give to support them. And if called, to go. And so I want us to do at least the first thing right now this morning. I want us to stop and pray. And this isn't going to be a prayer where I pray and you listen. I'm just going to kind of walk us through some topics, if you would, to pray into. And I'm just going to ask you to pray there. If you want to come down front and pray, do that. If you want to kneel where you're at, pray, do that. However you want to pray. But I just want you to seek the Lord on behalf of those who are suffering in our world. Let's let's pray together. Let's begin our time of prayer by focusing our attention on those in Haiti. Those families who have suffered great physical loss great relational loss. Ask God to be with them. Ask God to be with the church in Haiti that they would be a great witness, that they would be a great comfort to those who are hurting. Pray for the aid and relief of physical need that they have in Haiti to to get there. Pray that the gospel of Jesus would go forth and be heard and seen. Now let's go to the other side of the world, to Afghanistan. And let's pray for. Our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in harm's way, pray that they would find the provision and protection of God, but also pray that they would be bold in their suffering and in their captivity. Pray for those things now. Pray for our troops that are there, our military leaders, our government leaders, for others in organizational leadership that are trying to minister and help the people of Afghanistan. Find safety, find relief. Pray for them to be wise in the wisdom of God. Pray that the Taliban would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Pray that their leadership would come to know Jesus. Pray that as Muslims seek God, that they would see Jesus. Father, we come in the name of Jesus, asking both in Haiti and in Afghanistan that the name of Jesus would be lifted high so that all men, women, boys and girls would be drawn to him. Show each of us, God, what role we could play in either location to to send relief, to, to go and serve whatever, God, that you would call us to. But God, don't let our hearts just turn it off. Draw us in. Jesus, all the things that we have asked now as God's people, we ask in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. The book of Nehemiah is a book for people living in a broken world. The book of Nehemiah points out this out. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And not only is it a picture of our world, but it's a picture of people, individual lives. You know, if we, if we took and allowed Jerusalem to be a symbol of our own lives, people, the lives of people that we know, there, there, are, there are so many for whom... This this image, this vision of a life that's kind of been torn down and broken down. That's incapable of resisting attacks and temptations. You've fallen victim somehow to the assault of this world. And you feel like it's impossible for you to break free of your chains of captivity. See, that's the kind of ruin that's being described here. And, and you may be here today. And you may be somebody who's struggling with something like that. Maybe some sexual sin because of engagement in something like pornography. Man, the studies on that are off the charts about the, 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 the church of Jesus. About God's people who are battling that. Just, just off the grid. You, you may be battling some addiction to alcohol or, or drugs still, still. Still battling something. You know, it may not be something like that kind of addiction. Maybe yours, is, maybe yours is a little different. Maybe you have a bitter spirit. You know, you can become as addicted to a hypercritical attitude as you can to any drug. I know people like that. Just addicted to a critical spirit. Every, it just comes out that way. And you, you, you don't want it. You want to be set free from it. But you don't feel like you have the capacity to do that because your walls are torn down. Your your gates feel burned. You you didn't go there willingly. You didn't didn't get up one day and say, man, I can't wait to have a critical spirit. You didn't do that. You kind of moved there innocently if you would. But now you're there. And your life is in ruin because of it. And your defenses are gone and the walls of your city are broken down and, and your gates are burned. Maybe it wasn't something you did. Maybe it was something done to you. Maybe, maybe you're the adult child of an alcoholic. Maybe, maybe you're someone who was abused as a child, physically or sexually or, or emotionally. Maybe you were victimized in some other way and your heart is cut off from people. Your gates are burned down and nobody has access. They can't get in because you've been so badly burned. And you're suffering. And you don't want anybody to know. And you may even look good on the outside. It may all look shiny on the outside, but on the inside, internally, you're overwhelmed. You feel that disgrace. You feel cut off from the very grace of God. God has a plan for you, and part of that plan is to examine. Look at the walls of your life, and when you find those places that are in ruin, know that there is a way to to move out of that, and it's out of God's word. God has a plan. God loves you. He has a plan to help you move out of that that life that is shattered by ruin. And the scriptures give us answers for times like these. Times that we're, we're living in. One of the things that we talked about is how God uses the lives of men and women in the past that are chronicled in his word for the purpose of showing us that we can have hope no matter what we face. There's a way out You know, that's one of the beautiful things uh, about gates. Gates not only provide a way in, but they provide a way out. They provide a way in and a way out. And I don't know the condition of the gates of your life right now. But God God wants to rebuild them. And God wants to give you a way out. And I want to close today with just pointing out three ways that Nehemiah shows us a way out of lives that may be in ruin? Not, maybe not just for yourself, but maybe so you could walk somebody else out of a place where their life is in ruin, in, in just kind of rubble, and, and need recovery and rebuilding. So I want us to think about way out, and, and, and I want us to do this by looking at this, this last verse, verse four, in what we read today. Verse four says this. Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down, and I wept, and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah is pointing out a way out right here. And the first thing that Nehemiah shows us is the way out begins with a spirit of brokenness. It starts with me saying, God, I need you. God, I am broken. I'm, I'm a mess. I, my walls are broken down. I have no defense. My life is in ruin. And I need you, God. I need you to step into This mess. The Bible tells us that Nehemiah sat down and wept. See, Nehemiah's reaction to the condition was overwhelming emotion. It wasn't just, "Yeah, I feel bad." I mean, he empathized. His heart was broken for people. He he felt their their burden. Uh, He felt it so deeply that the Bible says he did not have enough strength to stand on his own legs. He just kind of collapsed. He, he had to sit down because of this overwhelming flood. And the Bible says that he just wept. He just, he just poured out his feelings. He, he, he stepped into his feelings. Friends, if you try to stuff your feelings, if you try to deny your feelings, it will kill you. The Bible tells us that. If, if you will start allowing yourself to feel your feelings, you will be taking one of the first steps towards finding healing. We, we, we've got to do that. Nehemiah does this. The Bible says that he did this for days. He mourned for days. It's not going to come up on the screen, um, but in Psalm chapter 51, uh, verse 17, you can go look at it later. God's word says this. The sacrifices that God desires are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God, if you want to find healing coming in your life, it will start with a broken spirit and a, a contrite heart. And God was going to use Nehemiah to do something about those living in brokenness. And God wants to do something in the lives of all of his people who may be still living in shattered brokenness. And the truth is, friends, any great work that God's going to do, whether it's in your life or in the life in your family or in the world in which you live, that great work begins first in the heart of an individual. God does a work in a person before he ever does it out in the world. His his great work always begins that way. And he's preparing. God has been at work long before Nehemiah shows up on the scene. Long before Nehemiah gets this report. God has has been working. 2 Chronicles 16 tells us, again, not in your notes, uh, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, if you want to write it down and look it up. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth for this purpose, to strengthen Those whose hearts are fully committed to him. If you you turn to that place in your brokenness where you turn to God with a contrite heart in your brokenness, the Bible says that he is looking for that moment to happen in your life because he wants to strengthen you. And so God comes and strengthens Nehemiah after he turns his heart towards the Lord, after he begins confessing his own brokenness. The second thing that we see Nehemiah doing in his journey is this. Nehemiah engaged in spiritual discipline. He engaged in spiritual discipline. See, friends, one of the ways out is through spiritual disciplines. These are habits, activities that you can engage in for the purpose of accomplishing what you can't currently accomplish under your own strength. It's a pathway that God's grace will flow into your life. And see, Nehemiah's reaction didn't, you know, he didn't just stay stuck in in emotion. He stayed concerned, but he didn't stay stuck in the emotion. But he moved to a place where he knew he would abide in God. He would grow in God. The burden would still be there, maybe it would still remain, but he would begin to grow. Another thing that you don't see Nehemiah doing, you don't see Nehemiah whining and complaining Everywhere he goes. He just, he goes to the Lord. He, he just goes to the Lord. He immediately did the one thing that he knew that he could do. I want you to notice that the, the spiritual discipline that he engaged in, the Bible tells us that he began fasting. Now, fasting isn't so much about food. Fasting is about focus. Fact, fasting is a rearranging of your life so that your focus does not get off of God. That's the purpose of fasting. It's not about food. You can fast from all kinds of things. The purpose is focus, to get your mind and heart focused on the Lord continually, to constantly remind you. So so, so Nehemiah does this. Nehemiah takes this step. In, In other words, friends, Nehemiah had a growth plan. Do you have one? If not, have I got a deal for you. If you're at a place in your life where you're saying, right now, God, I need something. I need need renewal. My, My life is just at this place of ruin in some area. I want to encourage you to go to our website. And when you get there, I just want you to go find the little search icon and search on growth plan. And it will take you to a place on our website that will help walk you through getting access to this tool. It is a resource to help you walk with the Lord where you're at right now. It will address the issues that you are facing specifically and give you a plan. Now, that plan is going to involve, try to help you involve some other people because you can't do this journey alone. Can't take the journey alone. It's not as healthy, okay? But I want to encourage you, do like Nehemiah did. He had a growth plan. He went back to something he knew. He started fasting before the Lord He engaged in something that he knew that would help him do that. The third thing that Nehemiah did that shows us a way out. He got into the presence of God. He got into the very presence of God. It says he sat down, he wept, he mourned for days. He continued fasting. And then it says, and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah came into the very presence of God. Friend, if you want a way out of ruin... If you want a way out of frustration and fear, the only way out is into the presence of God. See, Nehemiah had a clear, clear vision, a clear understanding of who he was fasting to focus on and who he was praying to. It was the God of heaven, the God of heaven. Now, if you stick with us on this journey, you're going to see over and over again, Nehemiah will grow in this. He'll become this man who the Bible talks of in 1 Thessalonians 5 as this man who becomes a ceaseless prayer. He will, you'll just continue to see him to pray. He'll pray, in, he'll pray in advance. He'll pray in the moment. He becomes this man who is convinced that he has to be continuously living in the presence of God. Now, here's the truth about Nehemiah that's true about you and me. Nehemiah lived in an age and in a land where there were many God's. And most people did not turn to the God of heaven. They turned to many other gods. They were putting their trust in so many other things. But Nehemiah knew that only the God of heaven could meet needs. Nehemiah knew that only the God of heaven can truly answer prayers. Nehemiah knew that only the God of heaven could raise our defenses. Nehemiah knew that only the God of heaven could deliver us from despair. Nehemiah knew that only the God of heaven can set captives free. And so Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven. Friends, you can't just cry out to anything. You can't turn to anything to find hope in this time of ruin and despair. You got to cry out to the God of heaven. And here's what is so wonderful about this the God of heaven made it easy for us to cry out because he sent his son Jesus. And the Bible says, anyone, anyone, anyone who will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Now, some of us called on the name of Jesus a long time ago. And we hadn't talked to him much since. And today, right now. You may need to call on the name of Jesus. Jesus is the God of heaven who came to earth to die a death, to pay a price that you and I couldn't pay so that we could have access to the God of heaven forever so that he could come and live in us and make his dwelling place here with us. He's that that God of heaven and Jesus is waiting for his people to come back to him to come back and, and honor him as the king that he truly is. Is, is he the king? Is he, is, he, is he the king of your heart? You can come back to him. If you've kind of pushed him off the throne, you can come back and say, God, I, I blew it. I need you. The people in the story of Nehemiah had done that. And we see them come back to God. And we see God begin to, to, to bless them. You may need to for the very first time. I don't know. Make Jesus your king. And again, the Bible says all you got to do is call on the name of the Lord in a spirit that is contrite, in a heart that is contrite. Believing that you are separated from God by your sin. And it is only through the grace of God, provided through his son's Jesus death, that you can be made right with the God of heaven. And you can do that right now. You can just cry out. God, I've done it my way and it's killed me, and now I'm here, and I'm coming to put my trust in you, to give you my life, to follow your plans in your life. Jesus, come in. Cleanse me. Make me whole. You can say that to God right now, and he'll receive you. No matter who you are or what you have done, that's his promise. Let's pray together. God, we come right now. Jesus, we come. We come longing for you to raise those walls in our lives that have been leveled. Those places in our hearts that have been decimated where rubble exists. Jesus, we're asking you to come. We're coming back to you declaring that you are king, making you our king once again. You are king of the universe and we're choosing again today to submit to that. Maybe someone for the first time, maybe some of us renewing that commitment. We want you, Lord Jesus, to come and be king of our hearts now. We come to worship you, we come to thank you, we come to celebrate you, Jesus as king of our hearts. It's in your name that we pray.